Let us pray. May my words and all our thoughts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, I would like to extend my thanks to the members of the congregation who have already been so wonderfully welcoming both at the earlier service and at the, uh, the talk that I've just been giving earlier. And particular thanks to your rector, Geoffrey. Uh, Geoffrey and I, as you may or may not have heard, we were actually at boarding school together in the 19th <coughs> and <laughs> two years behind uh, a certain Justin Welby, whom we just realized we neither of us knew particularly at that time. Uh, but it's a great pleasure to be here. So we have just come from the season of the Incarnation, the season of Christmas, when we believe that God has taken a really radical and subversive answer to the question of how to make God's nature known by God's people. God chooses to become visible, not in the form of some glorious statue or even in some special natural place like a grove or a spring, not even as a book, but as a living human being born and growing into a fully human life. That's an extraordinary thing to do. And in the Epiphany, the season of light, we remember that that same God became known in this form even to the most unlikely of people, astrologers from beyond the kingdom of Israel, indeed from their traditional enemies. The lesson of all of this, God is active and surprising and unpredictable. God makes God's nature known. And that's a constant challenge to all our theologies, all our limiting, confining systems of religion. The favorite occupation of God is to break down boundaries and break in where God is not expected. In the early church, the first followers of Jesus had a very strong sense of God's presence, and no wonder. But at the same time, that presence they knew as something disruptive. They remembered Pentecost as the time when the disciples began to speak in languages they didn't even know and got accused of being drunk for their pains. And that showed God's desire, again, to break through, to communicate with everyone, with the whole world. So they gave a name to that extraordinary experience of Pentecost. They called it the coming of the Holy Spirit, the divine breath, the present power of God active within the community. And that power, it didn't play by the rules. That's one of the things about the story. In some parts of the early church, they thought they'd worked out a routine. Preaching, baptism, laying on of hands, and the gift of the Spirit. There are to this day some movements in the life of the church that believe you can do this. I remember, and I remember with gratitude and affection, that there was a, a, a sort of adult education course which I attended more than 20 years ago in my then parish in England. This was long before I was, I was ordained. 
And for about eight weeks, one studied scripture, one discussed the teachings of the church, and at the end there was a service which was believed to be the moment at which there could be a laying on of hands for the Holy Spirit. It felt a bit like Thursday the 27th, 8.30, coming of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Didn't quite work that way. Even in the New Testament itself, if we read it carefully, we read that the Spirit of God will not be confined or channeled by process. Sometimes the Spirit comes upon pagans, for heaven's sake, who haven't been baptized, who haven't even been inducted into Judaism, as some people thought they should be first. Sometimes the Spirit comes with baptism. Sometimes it follows it. Sometimes it comes before it. The distinctive behavior of the Spirit of God is a certain kind of unruliness and unpredictability. And so, faced with that unruliness and unpredictability, the church looked back and remembered what it was like to witness the Spirit of God active in the baptism of Jesus, which is the moment we remember today. The baptism of Jesus is a formative, critical moment in the story of the gospel, and it's a little bit of a challenge. Let me explain why. It's formative and critical because the baptism marks the end of Jesus' almost unrecorded early years of life and the beginning of those probably three years very much remembered and recorded years of ministry. Along with the transfiguration, it's one of two moments where the voice of God is recorded as actually being heard speaking to the people. There is another moment in John's Gospel, by the way. So it's a critical moment in the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. But for John the Baptist at the time, and for us as well if we're paying attention, it raises a few questions. First one is this. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, even in the post-Pentecost Christian tradition, baptism has been understood as something like that. It's a process which washes away the old nature that was separated from God and begins a new life in deeper, more consistent relationship with what God means. So how in the world could Jesus be baptized? Jesus knew no sin. Jesus could not possibly have been in a closer relationship with God than he already was. So why was he baptized? John the Baptist, in one of the accounts, not the one in our lectionary for today, but the one in Matthew, John says, you come to me, I should come to you for baptism. But Jesus says, no, let this happen. Now, there is a rule in the study of Scripture that the more difficult and challenging a story is, the more likely it is that it is, in fact, very ancient and very authentic. There is a principle in the interpretation of Scripture that, like Isaiah's prophet, we tend to make the rough places smooth. We don't make the smooth places rough. So when you come to a rough place, that's probably very, very ancient. Jesus 
lived the full and complete life of a human being. I believe his baptism speaks to that humanity, that full humanity. That wasn't the full story of who Jesus was, but it's neither is it something to be taken by halves. They had a struggle in the early, well, they had many struggles in the early church, but one of them was to understand what Jesus was like in relation to God and in relation to humanity. There were two ways of, as it were, falling off the tightrope in trying to describe Jesus. One was to say, yes, he was fully God, and he sort of looked vaguely like us, but really wasn't. But he seemed to be human. I remember many years ago, I attended a service at Christmas, this was way back in Scotland, uh, in the town of St. Andrews, where my father belonged to the university, and there were many great scholars of the early church who were there. And one scholar who was an expert in early Christian heresies came out of church almost snorting. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see? That's an entirely docetic Christology. Hark the herald angels sing had failed to live up to his standards of, of Christian orthodoxy. And arguably he was right. That was one error, to, to underestimate how human Jesus' nature was. The other error, perhaps less dangerous, I don't know, was to say that Jesus was fully human, but that he was made divine by the adoption of God, that God chose Jesus to share in the divinity as an act of grace and love and favor. The challenge here is that there are some passages in the scripture, some of the early sermons recorded in Acts, some of the early epistles, which do seem to talk of something like God raising Jesus up as though he were adopted into divinity. That's traditionally a somewhat heretical way to think. But, you know, I'm not in my own diocese. But, you know, my, my bishop's not listening. Um, now, the baptism of Jesus could be one of those moments where we hear a more ancient way of understanding Jesus' mission and ministry. What I'd like to suggest to you today is that maybe the idea of Christ as the co-eternal word of God, as we find in the first chapter of John's Gospel, that wonderful hymn to the word that we hear every Christmas, and the possibly more ancient, half-suppressed belief of Christ as divine by adoption may both have very true and important messages. Jesus is for us and with us in his full humanity. We've just been reminding ourselves that that means that he was born into poverty in a stable, born as the weak, physically helpless child of a young human mother, forced into exile to escape persecution, and then growing up in an ordinary family with the challenges of life in first century Galilee. Now, if he grew up in a physical way, does that not that also mean that Jesus grew up psychologically and spiritually? I don't think it's consistent with Jesus being fully human if we envisage him as a sort of wonder child, 
miraculously able to work acts of divine power, even in his childhood. Now, let me tell you, there are some stories from the early centuries of the church which suggest that he was a sort of wondrous child. There's a text which survives called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's one of those so-called New Testament apocryphal texts. And it fills the life of Jesus with a series of miraculous, yes, scary, possibly, feats of power. Aged five, Jesus created 12 sparrows by molding them out of mud on the Sabbath and then made them fly away. A child who disturbed a pond that he had created was withered up on his arm. Another one who bumped into his shoulder rather rudely promptly fell down dead. And when some of the local people in Nazareth went to his parents and said, this child of yours is a public menace, they were struck blind. (laughs) Jesus was carrying a water pot which broke, so he put the water in his clothes instead and it didn't flow out. Everything he did breathed divine power. That, let me emphasize, is an apocryphal, uh, ancient yes, but not authentic text. I don't believe that we are called to believe in Jesus, the wonder baby. I believe we're called to believe in something much more important and much more powerful. We are called to believe that he was enfleshed, incarnate as a full human being and grew up gradually by stages, step by step, into the full awareness of his mission. And the story of his growing in spirit is perfectly reconcilable with Jesus being, in essence, the co-eternal divine word because the word took flesh, was fully enfleshed. Therefore, the word embraced the possibility of being born, growing, learning, discovering. That, I suggest, is the meaning of the appearance of the Spirit of God at Jesus' baptism. We witness in this glorious moment the Spirit enabling Jesus to grow into the fullness of his calling and his ministry. Why does that matter? Because, of course, in a certain way, the Spirit of God can do the same for all of us. The Holy Spirit need not, and I would say is not, something that makes people collapse on the ground, groan in ecstasy, or start talking gibberish. No, the Spirit of God comes to us and enables us to do the good that we do. It is a spirit that works in us reconciling neighbors who are at dispute, caring for those who need, offering words of support and consolation, all of those ministries of caring, everything else that furthers the work of God in the world, that is the Spirit of God at work in us. And the beauty of it is, we don't need to work to achieve the Holy Spirit. We don't attain it by taking a course of study, by adopting a regime of regular prayers, by engaging in acts of self-discipline and formation, though they may all be useful and good in their own ways. But it is God who is active. God does not wait for us to be ready. God does not wait for Thursday the 27th at 8.30 to pour out the Spirit. God, as the ancient prophets knew and said, God will pour out 
God's Spirit on all flesh. All we have to do is to be ready and open to receive that Spirit in all its fullness. Let us be ready for that every day. Amen.